Okay, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Nahmaduhu nusalli ala Rasulihi al-Kareem. Amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to God and seek blessings upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. So, continuing along in in, in our exploration of the first surah, we're now going to the next line. And and so just to put us all on the same page to look at what we have covered so far. We have, we spent time looking at the Basmalah, which is this first line. Uh, we explored a dimension of this passage in the name of God, in the name of Allah. And then we spoke about Rahmah, uh, the mercy of God, this intimating mercy of God, these two dimensions of that. And then I believe it was in the last class where we spoke about Alhamdulillah, praise and gratitude being due to God, and that God is the Rabb of all the worlds. Rabb is commonly translated as Lord, and I suggested nourisher. Lord is not wrong, I prefer nourisher. And then I gave you a full definition, the one who takes you from immaturity to maturity according to your unique design. And then that brings us to the next line, which is a repetition. It's once again, here it's the entirely merciful, the especially merciful, or the most in Rahma, the, uh, the, 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 the most in Rahma, the eternal in Rahma. So simple question. Um, what are your reflections on what a, the wisdom we can gather? What is the wisdom or what are some wisdoms we can gather from the fact of repetition? So we have Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim right here. And then literally two lines later, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. What would be uh, some, some uh, possible lessons that we can gather for why there is this repetition? What are your thoughts? And chances are all of your answers will be uh, right on target. Uh, but feel free to type in the chat box or to unmute your microphone. What do you think? Why do we have Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, and then again, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim? So one, absolutely, Sana, is, is emphasis. That when we... And Santiago, perhaps the most important attribute of Allah, yeah, and Suhaila to emphasize Allah's mercy. I'd say, I'd say uh, all of these uh, uh, I would agree with. When we look at the different attributes of, of Allah in the Quran, let's see. Uh, so we have, uh, we commonly speak, for example, of the 99 names of God. And then if we look at other attributes in the Quran, we have even more than number might go up to as much as 120 different attributes. So, so we said, how do you get to know God by way of his names or his attributes? There's multiple ways to categorize them. The most common way to categorize them is to put all the attributes into one of two categories. One are the attributes of beauty. That's two T's, not, not an H. Um, the attributes of beauty, and the other is the it would be the attributes of majesty. 
So the add, you know what? Let me just rewrite this whole thing. So we have the attributes of beauty and the attributes of majesty. Is majesty with a G or a J? Majesty, I think it's a J, yeah? J, okay, thank you, Ramsha. Okay, and so we might see the majesty, majesty and power. So these are, these are called the attributes of Jamal. So you might've heard of the name Jamal. So Jamal is beauty. And then these are the attributes of power. Now, what are these? <clears throat> they, are, they are attributes to help us try to conceive of Allah. That Allah is not limited by our understanding of these attributes. I think you, you all get that. He's also not limited by the attributes themselves. And he's also not limited by the fact that he's not limited. Okay, so, so let's make some more sense of this. When we are looking at an attribute like Ar-Rahman, writing skills is not really working today. So, so we have Ar-Rahman as one of the most commonly cited of his attributes. Now, there is my understanding of what this means. And what does this mean to me? If I take it from a linguistic perspective, I'm saying that Allah is the most, is the highest source of Rahman, highest source of Rahma. Because that's how I'm trying to understand it. Meaning, there are many who give rahmah. I give rahmah. My mother, my my father, people in my community, other people give rahmah. And above all that, Allah is the source of rahmah. Good. And not only that, that rahmah I'm receiving from others is also coming from Allah through them. Good. The real meaning, however... of Ar-Rahman is up to Allah. This is kind of a philosophical point, but the point we're saying is that we have these words that we are in. We have the assistance of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in explaining these meanings. And the real meaning is, is up to God. And and so God is not limited by my perception of him. 
I think that makes sense, right? That how much I understand Allah might be a, a tiny fraction of what a person can understand of Allah. And if we take this further, God is not, uh, I'm supposed to put the word limited here. God is not limited by his attributes, even according to what he says they mean. And he's not limited by the fact that he's not limited. This is where it starts getting super abstract. So that applies to the name Ar-Rahman. It applies to all of the attributes that he has shared. Now to put that into practice, what does that mean? It means that each of us has a particular perception of Allah. Not only does each of us has a have a not, not only do, do each of us have a particular perception of Allah, we might even have a perception of where He is. So, for example, if I were to ask you, imagine right now you're making a prayer to Allah. Please give me X Y Z. Please give healing to this person, or please, please, uh, uh, you know, help me get through the day, or. Uh, please guide me on this matter, whatever the case may be. Try to imagine or try to think about where you imagine Allah to be when you are making that, when you are making that, that plea, that prayer. Some of us, when we're praying to God, we're imagining God is really high above us. Some of us might be imagining God is right in front of us. Or outside of your prayer, try to imagine, if you can put a place on it, where God is. Maybe you're imagining God all around you. Yeah. Or, you know, I've had students who imagine him, like, in the back of their head, watching over. And so one of the purposes of the attributes is to help focus on how to perceive of Allah. And then a point I also, I think we might have made in, in the first or second class is what I perceive of Allah will affect how I perceive of life itself. What I perceive of Allah in my heart affects, wait, is it A or E? Well, let's just say impacts. Impacts how I perceive the events in my life. 
So apologies on the repetition. Um, <clears throat> so if in my heart, I truly perceive that Allah is pouring rahma on me in my life, then when I'm hit with struggle, the struggle still, still hurts, but then I also think to myself, it could have been so much worse. But because God is being so merciful on me, it's not as bad as it could have been. Even if yours dies, you know, I've had, I've had students, you know, over the past week, especially who have loved ones who passed away because of the virus, like, you know, their fathers. And, and as horrible as that is, I'm thinking of one student who is super close to her father. Uh, as horrible as that is, part of her perception is that could have been even, even worse. You know, he could have gone through a long, painful torment in his or, or who knows what. It could have been at a different time, considering it was at this time of the year. It's, it's, if a moment of death can be ideal, it's kind of ideal. It was literally right before Ramadan. And, and, and so, so there's that. And so the point I'm saying is that there's one aspect, the lip service we give in terms of how we perceive of Allah, and then there's what we really perceive in our hearts. And so I think I mentioned that a lot of times students come to my office saying, okay, God hates me. God is out to get me. They don't have any evidence, but this is what they've decided. And they start curating a whole narrative to support it. And then what will happen? If that person is hit with struggle, they'll see it as a punishment from Allah. Or if someone feels that God is not really involved in my life, they're hit with struggle, okay, where's God? Or they're not going to pay attention. So how I perceive of Allah, what I perceive of Allah is going to inform, impact how I interpret what is happening in my life. And so we have right at the beginning of the surah, four references, literally in three lines, to God's Rahma. So in the name of God, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. So praise and gratitude are due to God, the nourisher of all the worlds, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. So a way to understand this, you know, by way of emphasis at the very least, is that a dominant relationship that Allah has with creation, a dominant relationship that Allah has with me is Rahmah upon Rahmah. And so now then the goal is to apply it to life. That when I'm perceiving life, I should see the default of what's happening in life as Rahmah. Just think about this. When you ask yourself, you know, how you perceive of the world and what happens in the world, is your default to see it as neutral? Is your default to see it as destruction? Is your default to see it as peaceful? In the same way that a lot of times we often say that religion breeds violence. I mean, if we're really going to be objective about it, the amount of people of religion who engage in violence is very, very small compared to all the people who do not. And so we're saying here that even when we perceive of the world at its most darkest, the default of the world is still Rahma. There are still, there is still destruction. There is still devastation. There's still loss and struggle. And yet the default of the world is still Rahma. And so that is an approach I need to develop in my thinking. And one big step towards that was the gratitude assignment that we assigned a couple of a couple of days ago. 
But now here's a different question. Okay, if you know, if Allah is so merciful that His mercy is directly mentioned four times right in the first half of this very small surah, then how do we explain struggle? And some of you are going to immediately say, it's at best. Okay, I'm asking for something deeper. How do we explain struggle? Let's change it from struggle to suffering. And I'm going to give you uh, some real world situations. Uh, one is just any suffering. Okay, deeper than that, someone commits a crime and they get away with it. Someone commits a crime and escapes prosecution. Okay, deeper than that. Let's say you have a baby who is born addicted to drugs. Meaning the baby is addicted because of something mother did. Okay. Or let's make it even deeper. So, I had a friend who had a niece who, <clears throat> who was born with this disease and the abbreviation was something like Debra. Derma something, something, something. And the situation was that mother and father, they had this one in X million chance of their particular genetic setup to reach this baby. You know, almost impossible, but it happened. And this baby had this condition in which her skin was so soft and brittle, not soft, but brittle and sensitive, that if you were to touch it, she would start bleeding. And so now imagine the baby screaming in pain when that happens. And this would even be in her esophagus, that the baby could only drink super soft liquids because otherwise that will scratch up her esophagus. And so for 24 seven, the, uh, the whole job of the caretakers is that they would put gauze bandages all over the baby's body. And by the time they're done, it's all covered in blood. And then they would have to carefully take it all off and not put new gauze on 24 seven. And the baby is screaming nonstop in agony. Okay. Real world situation. If Allah is so merciful, how do we explain this? And essentially what I'm asking is life fair. Okay. So in the case of this last example, nobody intended for this to happen. This was an unlikely combination of genes. In the case before that, the baby didn't do anything to, to earn this, but the mother did something. And the mother might have been responding to her own trauma or something. 
but the mother made a choice. In the case above that, you have someone who has, who has hurt other people, you know, let's say willfully, but has gotten away with it. Let's even speak about someone who's orchestrated a genocide okay, while they live in a palace or just anything, big or small. So what do y'all think? Is life fair? Okay, Sylvester, no. Okay. Anyone else? Your bad times teach you more than your good times, a way to be more grateful toward what you have and value your relationships because someone is always going through the worst. Okay, I'd say that's, that's definitely fair uh, in some cases. But what about this case of this baby born addicted or this baby with this disease? Wouldn't there be an easier way for Allah to teach the same lessons? Life isn't supposed to be fair. So Asana, you're basically saying life is not fair. It isn't supposed to be fair. We will always have the good and the bad. That is why Jannah is the goal and this world is temporary. Okay. Any other thoughts? Because this also plays out in terms of how we understand how life should operate. So Sana is saying if everything was good on the earth, we wouldn't want to go to heaven. Fair enough. Life is not fair. We cannot control all the variables. Okay. Anywhere else? Anyone else? Again, you're welcome to either type it in or turn off your, your, your mute. Can we really choose, can we really understand why God chooses to test us the way he does? Okay, so you're saying no. Therefore, I think Fatima, you're saying life is not fair. Ramsha saying life is not fair, so she would focus on the hereafter because that's where we belong. Okay. So, Hela, that's part of the reason life is a test. Remember, how many people are saying test? I was saying try not to say test, but mashallah. Allah tests us based off of what we can handle. Okay. So, the short answer is we're saying no, life is not fair. If you do not include the day of judgment. So in this worldview, in the Islamic paradigm, this worldly life is not fair. Okay, so let's talk about life itself. So I don't think we've done this yet. Compared to my squiggly lines, that straight line looks so straight. So all the phases you go through life, you're going to go through five phases in life. One is this worldly life. This is where we are all right now. Sometimes I wonder where my undergrads are, but I have to even convince myself they're also in this worldly life, commonly called dunya. So what does dunya mean? It means this world. If you get deeper into its etymology, it means something low. If you get even deeper in its etymology, what is dunya? Dunya is something that you reach for it, and then just as you're about to grab it, it escapes you. And so it often uh, uh, entices you to start chasing after it. And that is going to begin <clears throat> that begins with our birth, and that will end with our death. So in this paradigm, your moment and location of death is set. And then you enter a state of death, which we call the barzakh.
So anyone you know who has passed away, that is where they are right now. It is sort of like a dream-like state. There is consciousness, even though your physical body may not exist anymore. And then at some point in the future, everyone who has ever lived will be resurrected on the same moment, right down to their fingertips. And that will be part of the beginning of the Day of Judgment. With the result being, in the Day of Judgment, you're going to be held to account for the choices you made in your life. With the result being that either you go to paradise or you go to hell. And then there'll be some people who will pay off whatever they need to pay off. And then they will go to paradise as well. Prior to birth, you're in your mother's womb. Entry is give or take about 120 days after conception. And prior to that, you're in sort of a pre-eternity stage state. So this is the path of life we're going to go on. And, and what are we saying here? Based on the current discussion, what happens in this life will manifest in the condition of death and will ultimately manifest on the day of judgment. There'll be some things here that will influence your worldly life. And we are saying, yeah, this worldly life is not fair because it is incomplete. It is completed with the Day of Judgment. And so the Day of Judgment will be a day in which everything is balanced out completely. So Santiago, to your question, will anyone stay in hell forever? Uh, this is a topic you find, you find debated. So, so first, a short answer is that on the Day of Judgment, everyone is going to be at the very least treated fairly. No one's going to be treated less than fairly. And, and some people are going to be given something better than justice. And so of the people who are going to hell, it's, it's unanimously agreed upon that some people are going to go to heaven after that. But then there's difference of opinion in regarding everyone else. So some are of the opinion that some people stay in hell forever. So for example, the devil who we'll talk about much later uh, is going to be sent to hell. And I don't know of anyone who disagrees that the, that the devil uh, about the devil's destiny, that he'll always be in hell. Uh, there's a minority opinion from a major scholar that because of God's mercy, hell itself will cease to exist. 
and, and everyone in it. But all of this is essentially scholarly speculation. Because we're also speaking about a, 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 something that is beyond our physics. So how does time even apply there? You know. Hell and heaven both seem to have days. And in heaven, each day is supposed to be more magnificent than the previous day. Whereas in hell, you're there, you even have, so to speak, breaks. Uh, but um, the, there are some people who will be there in what feels like an eternity. Okay. So what are we saying here is that this worldly life is not fair unless we include the day of judgment. And so when we speak about the mercy of God, we're saying it's limited in this world. So even though I'm saying the default of this world is God is pouring mercy upon us and on the world. And uh, uh, we're saying even then, that mercy is limited. And for some, it'll be fully experienced on the other side. So far, so good. Okay, tomorrow we'll talk more on the Day of Judgment, inshallah. Okay. So uh, I'll open the floor to questions of any form, questions about anything. That little girl who was born with that disease uh, with that skin problem, that was her life nonstop until she was about eight years old. And then she died. And so think about that when we get into the day of judgment question tomorrow. Uh, so we still have to address more about, about uh, suffering in this world and then how the day of judgment will operate in the specific term that Allah is using in the surah for the day of judgment, Maliki or Yom din and why is he Malik of the Yom din that we'll talk about inshallah tomorrow. So, any other questions? Yeah, yeah, Eve, very, very sad. Uh, Santiago, go for it. Go for it. Um, I wanted to ask, like, from when we were talking about that, the perception of Allah, that Allah is not limited by our perception. So, I wanted to ask, like, is... In Islam, do do we believe that like that Islam has everything that is about God, or like is it beyond Islam as well? Like, are there other attributes of God that are outside of Islam? Like, is is the entirety can can we say that like that we that that Islam has it in there, everything in there? So we do have a passage in the Quran. This is in the fifth surah. Where, where God is saying that today I have perfected or I've completed your religion. And so from there, people then interpret that the answer to your question is yes. Yeah. And then another approach people give is that there might be other aspects that people are not aware of, but it'll still be tested according to our understanding of the Quran and the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. 
See what I'm saying? So even one of the big debates is simply, okay, is it okay to use the word God? You know, if we're speaking in English. And, and so that you find people have written articles. Some will say, no, you can only use Allah because God, people will have different understandings of what that means. And if you use the word God, you can also have goddess, whereas the word Allah doesn't have a feminine or doesn't, you know, I mean, Allah is looked at as being without gender, but there isn't a feminine or a plural for, for the word Allah. And, and so even that part gets debated. So I made the point the other day about the word khuda being uh, a name that Persian speakers or Urdu speakers will use for, for, for God. That's also the result of, of deliberation. Is it okay to use that? And so if other uh, attributes are also being applied to God, uh, it'll also be evaluated. Like, does it work? Does it not work? And so, as you see, I use God interchangeably, you know, with, with Allah. When I'm praying to God, I always use Allah instinctively. Uh, I don't say, you know, dear God, please give me such and such. I'm saying, Ya Allah, oh Allah, please give me X, Y, Z, and such. So the point is that uh, it is possible that, that, that sources outside of Islam also have teachings about God, but they would be tested according to what is within Islam to see whether it's uh, accepted. Mm. Make sense? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Sure. Um, so, Barzakh, uh, so, to, so the question of Barzakh, uh, I'm cautious to call it something like purgatory, and I think purgatory, even in Catholicism, is often misunderstood. Uh, the easiest way to literally understand it is that it's a condition of death. And, and so, 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 back to this. So, Barzakh, uh, so let's say you have someone who died yesterday and the day of judgment, let's say is not for a hundred years or a thousand years from our worldly perspective, they're in this condition, which is sort of like sleep, you know, it's like a dream like state. Uh, and so I'm cautious to, to equate that with purgatory, uh, but it does seem to have some similarities there, but it's easier to say barzakh is barzakh. Uh, what happens in the streamlike state? So some people say, according to the teachings attributed to the prophet, may peace be upon him, is related to how you treated people in the world. Uh, your experience in this death state will either be one of ease or it's going to be one of torment. So one of the common prayers is a protection from the torments of the grave. And so there's a narration where the prophet, peace be upon him, is saying that for some people, the experience in Barzakh is going to be such a, a process of being squeezed that it's kind of like your ribs are getting pushed into each other. So for some people, that's what the experience of death is going to be like. Uh, whereas for other people, it's going to be like you're in a wide open space and it might feel almost like a blink of an eye. Just like when you sleep, you know, sometimes you might sleep for for five minutes and you feel like you've had a good full night's sleep. Sometimes you sleep for, for 12 hours and, you know, you feel like you've barely, you know, gotten a fraction of what you need. And, and so your consciousness of time when you're sleeping is, is, is very different. Uh, is this where snakes come in as a punishment from the grave? Uh, this is one of the places where, where you'll have ex the experience like of snakes coming in and biting you. Some people will have that. Absolutely. Uh, what is pre-eternity? Is that with God? Did our souls exist? So this we will talk about more when we get into the fitrah, which will be after a while, but it is this state 
that seems to take place outside of creation or before the creation of the universe in which our souls are present even though we may not have physical body and form and then there's going to be this big event we're going to talk about where we're where god where allah is speaking to us so that uh, that we'll be getting to inshallah uh what else other questions about anything at all random question is um this the fifth class or the sixth class i think this is the fifth class but i'll have to look it up yeah. uh random Sana, question. question yeah random question um in terms of like the pre-eternity isn't that also like where like i don't know isn't there like something that's like a hadith or something like that that said that like you've met your um like like your husband or your wife there and that's why like when you meet again you like i don't know uh, something that specific i'm not familiar with but there is a concept more on the spiritual side of things that that people you have an affinity for or some attachment for in this world often will be people that in this realm of the unseen, your souls also have some sort of connection to. Uh, will you meet your, 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 will you have met your husband or wife there? Uh, what happens uh, uh, if you get a divorce from them in, in this world, you know? <laughs> so I don't know about that one. There is, I mean, there is a, a somewhere of the opinion that there, everyone does have sort of a soulmate, you know, based on the ayah that says we've created you from one soul and from that soul created its mate. And this is very common with undergrad students, you know, uh, and those of us who are older kind of don't buy that as much. But Allah knows best, it's entirely possible, inshallah. Sajid, how are people chosen for extreme suffering? In my mind, most people would prefer normal levels of suffering for normal levels of payout in the hereafter. This is a wonderful question. And it's sort of like the why question. And so part of the why question is, why does Allah Ta'ala, for example, make me be born in the family that I'm born with, as opposed to a different family? And that's the destiny that he has chosen for me. And so some of us, as a result of nature, have a greater capacity for suffering than others. Some of us uh, are going to be given more ease than others. And, and with the answer why, it's literally Allah's will and we surrender. Thus the word Islam, part of the idea of Islam is surrendering. We're saying, okay, this is the system you set up. Why'd you set up this whole system where we have to live through life and then go through a day of judgment and then have our, our, our ultimate destiny? Why? This is the system you chose, chose. we surrender. And that's going to be the, the effective answer. We can give logical answers uh, that he is testing you according to your capacity. And part of the purpose of testing you is to make your, your capacity increase and remove everything else from within you, remove all the impurities within you. Uh, everything is destiny, but prayers have a lot of power. So can prayer change your destiny? The answer is both yes and no, but the default answer that matters is that yes, you can. Otherwise, there'd be no point for prayers. And we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get into free will and predestination. At that point, your mind will really start, you know, spinning. But let's—we're going to cover some other stuff before that. If someone is going through extreme suffering and is from another person, what can one do? Surrender or escape? That depends specifically on the suffering itself. We will also, inshallah, spend some time talking about justice. So the short answer is that when suffering is taking place, there's the person who is experiencing suffering, and there's also the witness who is watching the person experiencing suffering. So even with, with uh, one of the big 
the lessons from this pandemic is my behavior will have impact on someone else, which might be a thousand miles away based on how much I go outside and do other things or how much I do or do not protect myself. And so, so what we can do, the very, very bare minimum is pray. And then we have the hadith attributed to a trace back to Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, uh, which he says, when you see something wrong, change it with your hand. And if not, change it with your tongue. And if not, that is uh, feel bad about it in your heart. That is the weakest of faith that we'll be revisiting. But the short answer to your question, Ramsha, is that it depends upon the actual situation. There are some types of suffering where you cannot do anything, you know, let's say like a terminal illness. And then there's some types of suffering like oppression where you have to do something or you have to do something for someone else who is in oppression. Any other questions about anything at all? And meanwhile, in case anyone's typing anything, I hope what you're seeing is little by little where it's like these little bricks that we're adding to this wall that we're constructing. And so most of the focus has been on our relationship with Allah. And most of that has been on the fact of his Rahmah. No other questions? Okay, then. We will stop here. Let me give you the... Uh, yeah, it's all good. You've got to run. Uh, let me give you the address again of the document where everything is being saved. Tinyurl.com. Pandemic Quran class L1. And so this recording I will also post there. And it's a good thing that uh, you all reminded me to say that because then I have to also save these um, whiteboard drawings that will also... Uh, post there inshallah okay otherwise uh, i will see you all tomorrow and we'll continue we'll talk more about the day of judgment inshallah subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk subhanakallahumma glory to you o allah wa bihamdika praise and gratitude are to you nashhadu la ilaha illa anta we bear witness there is no god but you nastaghfiruka we seek your forgiveness and we turn to you. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka, wanatubu ilayk. Okay, may Allah Ta'ala reward you all, and we will continue tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.